watch all the videos, read books on it, do whatever you can, absorb everything like a sponge, basically. Learn, do, just build a project on your own, follow some plans and learn from your mistakes and next time become better at it and just practice at everything. Hello and welcome to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson, the show that talks about the business behind the furniture business. On this episode, I sit down with Corey Tai, owner of the furniture company CT Woodwork. When Corey says he's been in the industry his whole life, he means it. By learning every part of the business from family, from school, and on the job, he's seen all sides of what the world of furniture offers. And he has taken that knowledge to help build his own successful company along the way. Having a strong background in woodworking has also let him expand his business reach by teaching classes and offering other services to the public in his shop, allowing him to diversify his income in an at times turbulent industry. So follow along as we talk about educating your clients, shop organization, woodworking as your destiny, and much more. So let's start the episode and hear about Corey's journey in his own words. When I was like five or six years old, my grandfather made me a small workbench, gave me some hand tools and stuff and said, have fun, kid. And even before that, when I was like two, three years old, I was told from my parents that they would, my dad would come home and then the doorknobs would be unscrewed because I had a screwdriver in my hand. So, you know, it's pretty much destined to do this. And then I, over time, I did, you know, carpentry stuff with my dad around the house doing decks and windows and stuff like that. And then I took in high school and middle school all the tech classes that I could possibly. In that same time period, around when I was 16, I started my first job working in a high-end shop in uh, Oldfield, Setauket area on Long Island, working on multi-million dollar homes, doing like exotic wood veneers doors we did furniture everything like that i did that during the summer and, and any breaks i had then i went off to college for um woodworking suny morrisville it's about 45 minutes from uh, syracuse uh, and we did everything from milling our own lumber that was was off the property of the campus that the heavy equipment class did to drawing it to spray finishes production furniture cabinetry the whole nine yards and then i went two more years for a bachelor's in uh entrepreneurship and small business management there and then throughout all those times I also worked whenever I could at home at other shops so I've worked at one shop where I ran a CNC and we did a lot of commercial work with a lot of melamine and laminate I worked at a shop that did a lot of work in Bellport and then the last shop I worked at was um, we did a lot of work on Fire Island doing kitchens and built-ins and things like that I started the business 2015 on the side End of 15, I moved into a two-car garage out of my parents' basement. Was in there for about a year, year and a half, and then outgrew that and moved into a three-and-a-half-car garage. I was literally a few garages down. Was in there until the um, very beginning of 2019. Then I got to the point, in 2019, I just was working, I think, about three to four days a week at the shop, and I was doing this the other whatever days I had available. And I got to the point where I just got too busy on the side. So I said, all right, I got to quit my job and went on my own. And that's when I happened to find the shop I'm in now, which is about 2,800 square feet, an old barn on a piece of property on two acres. Around the same time of 2019, uh, I started a like gym membership to my shop. So anybody, as long as I'm in the shop, they can come and use things and it helps pay towards my rent here. And uh, it's a lot of fun mingling with other people that make things. I also, uh, around 2018, started teaching woodworking classes out of my shop here. And currently, I'm actually the only one on Long Island that I know of that's teaching classes outside of the city and uh, out of state. 
but uh, I think that's pretty much my story since the day one, you know. And then uh, as one last thing was uh, when my grandfather unfortunately passed away, um, 2000, it was 2020, we dug a lot of the history up and I found out that I never knew was that my great grandfather in Germany was cabinet makers and I never was told that. So I pretty much was destined in life to do this. So it's kind of cool. You have been doing this really your whole life yeah. and you felt like it was your destiny. You were destined to be a woodworker. There's no point in your story that you haven't been on this track of building furniture. And I'm going to get back into your story and all that. And we're going to talk more about how you progress down that line. But I want to ask you right from the start, honestly, how are you not burnt out from this industry? Literally your entire life, your earliest memories till now have been nothing else but building furniture and woodworking. And I know that you have the passion and you have the love for this, but a lot of people who have passion and have love for this and do it with all their heart can't sustain doing it yeah. all the time, every day. But you still wake up every morning and seem like you love what you do. So how have you not already burnt out? Burnt out? I mean, it's my. I think it's the passion for it. And then as well as the teaching is my way of giving back what I've learned my whole life. And I enjoy doing that. That helps break up my day, all the grunt work of the business part of it, or the built-in building, or the cabinet building, or the finishing. It helps and make the whole week go smoother and, and enjoy it. Um, and then, you know, I'm also a big believer. Every other month, I try to take at least a weekend off or a couple days off just to kind of refresh my head. But that's, you know, I just keep going under the grindstone, keep moving forward. You went to school for this, so I want to ask you about that. There is a debate, and I get asked all the time for people who want to start doing this, if going to school is worth it when you want to start a furniture company. You went to school, but you also worked in other people's shops for 10 years, so you have a view from both sides of that fence, the learning on the job and also learning in school. Looking back on both of those scenarios, do you feel like going to school was worth it? Or do you feel like you got more value out of working on the job and learning in real life situations? I would say it was definitely worth it because like I said, we did sawmilling, we did drawing lumber, we did a lot of things that I never did working in shops. And that's actually opened my eyes to things I want to do down the road. I want to have a sawmill. I want to mill my own lumber. I want to dry my own lumber. And yeah, they always, everybody says, you know, learning on the job is the best way. And I think that's, it is the best way. But in school, you also have to learn a little bit of the business theory. You also have to learn about different things that you're not going to learn in the job, especially for me. You know, I, I could say I've, I'm 32 and I've been doing it for half my lifetime professionally. And out of those all those years, I only had a few months out of all that working in a natural office in a cabinet shop. So the business part, I would I gained a lot more experience in school and doing an internship versus everything else when I was only the guy in the shop building and installing and all that stuff. So I would definitely say they're both equally important. You bring up one of my favorite points that I always tell people if they want to go to school for this, and that is you should go to school for business as well, because you can learn the woodworking, and you can have the passion, and you can have that, but if you don't learn the business side, 
then you won't be able to succeed in this by yourself. And you'll just end up working for somebody else for the rest of your life because you'll have the skills. You'll have the skills to build things, but you won't have the skills to build your business. I say it a lot and I know I do, but it's a furniture business. It's both sides and you need to respect both sides of that if you want to do it well. When you were in school, what were some of the things that they were teaching you that you really took note of that helped you start your business with a leg up over somebody who never learned those things to begin with? Uh, well, I'd say a few things was um, my biggest thing I enjoy with the business part is the marketing part. So learning how to use guerrilla marketing, Facebook, social media, things like that, and using a website, you know, that helped a lot. Also... Accounting class-wise was learning how to use QuickBooks because that's important as a business owner to learn how to use that. I still know a, f a fraction of it, but I have enough that I can com I'm confident in using it. Um, you know, really a little of everything helped a lot. Um, I mean, we did financing, so I learned how to do, you know, if I had to do loans with equipment and things like that. And then human resources, how to deal with issues with employees that, that could come up. That was another scenario we did. So a little of every class helped a, a long way. You hit on the marketing side of this, and that's something that a lot of people have problems with. They aren't sure how to get their name out there. You've been doing this for a number of years yourself, and you've seen other shops do it, and you've learned how to do it in school. So what are some of the things that you've really been digging into when it comes to the marketing side of your business? Definitely having a well-made website helps. Uh, social media is trying to post as much as you can about completed projects, process the journey that you go through a project helps a lot. Even just networking is a huge thing with marketing, talking to other people that you know, or you know, you do a job for somebody and you talk, happen to be see their, your neighbor, their neighbor next door and you talk to them and you get a job from them. It's a little of everything. Yeah, I would also say too is making connections with designers is very important and with, with um, contractors too, which I have right now two contractors that I do some work locally around with. So that's very important to kind of spread your wings out there to those people. I know that you've grown up in this industry and you learned from it, literally dragging logs out of the forest and turning that into high-end furniture. You have the full log-to-table approach. Yes. And I also know that because of that, you're against big box stores and that kind of particle board, quick assemble, the idea of just mass-produced furniture. But I also know that as a business person, as somebody who's done this on their own, you have to understand that they're not just doing it to do it most of the time. They're doing it to hit a price point. They're doing it for people out there who might not be able to afford custom furniture. And so there has to be that give and take. But from your perspective, when you're talking about pricing, how do you set your pricing up to be able to work with those types of people, people who might just be looking for big box store furniture, but you want to be able to show those people that your furniture is accessible to them as well. Or maybe it's above accessible for their initial budget, but it gives them more value than the type of furniture that they could just get from a big box store and have it delivered next day. Um, well, for me, it's staying true to my slogan, which is where ideas become heirlooms. So I want to build heirloom quality furniture. 
And also, depending on their budget, I tried, okay, ask something. It's always got to ask, what's their budget? And okay, if the budget's kind of lower, then, you know, we have to use a different material. We have to use a different process to make that furniture or a different style to meet that budget. And if we can't make it, then, you know, maybe I, they, I explained to them, well, if you do it this way or, or a certain material this way, it's going to be more money, but you're not, you're going to have something that multi-generational, you know, where your kids could have down the road to cherish. Um, an example of that was a little over a year ago, I made a whole dining room set for somebody. I made two dining tables out of walnut and 12 Maloof style dining chairs for them. And their, their right off the get-go was we want something that our kids can enjoy down the road. And we wanted an American made. We didn't want to buy from the store. We wanted somebody custom made. And now I have a, possibly a few orders from just from that family's, you know, and their neighbors because of that, you know, the level of quality. And they were willing to pay for that level of quality because they know, like I said, that it's going to last forever. You know, over 100 years, it could be around. Making quality work is one of the ways you get over that price hurdle. So let's go a little bit deeper into that. How are you expressing to your clients that your work is more quality than something that they could get mass produced somewhere? Because you can say all the catchwords you want. You can say heirloom furniture and you can say generational furniture and you can mean it. You can personally mean it about your work, but there's nothing stopping a big box store from saying similar things and using similar marketing terms. Yeah. So how are you actually... When you sit down with a customer, how are you actually explaining to them so they understand why your furniture is better than, say, a mass-produced piece of furniture? And that those words, generational, heirloom, actually mean what they say when it comes to your pieces. It goes down to educating them how the process, how I make them, and educating them not only how I make it, but explaining how these mass-produced stuff is made and you know, explaining that way. And also sometimes I'll bring samples of joints that I've done, or I'll, if it's something smaller that I've made, like a little stool or something, I'll bring that and show them, okay, this is something I made 10, 15 years ago. And you can see it's been beating, but it's still going. And also explain, um, like I said, the process, how it's built, the tooling that I use, um, and just showing that, you know, a, a rendering of how something will look versus something that just looks blah from a big box store. If you're okay with it, let's go even deeper into working with clients, and that's your actual pricing and how you're pricing your pieces out. Yeah. You've already got them interested in working with you because you've taken the time to explain why your pieces are going to be more expensive, but better quality and last longer and have better value in the long run than a mass-produced piece. But then it gets down to the actual pricing, and it gets down to actually needing to tell the client this is how much it's going to cost. How are you working out that pricing? What's your pricing structure? And how are you showing it to the client once you figure out that price? So with that being using QuickBooks and also giving them a like a proposal and a long email explaining everything, I'll break down this is all the materials, this is every material that I use, down to the the hinges that I use, the draw slides, the brand, sometimes even the model I'll know. I'll give them the exact paint color or the stain. I'll give them the lumber, whatever I'm using, down to every little button bolt and explain this is what it's going to cost. Um, and that's the total for that. And then I'll break down the labor, you know, how many, figuring out, okay, how many days it's going to take me and Rob or just myself to make that. And then that's the labor. And then 
If it's something specific, I'll give them in the email, okay, it's going to be three-quarter inch pre-finished plywood at sides with half-inch back and, you know, three-quarter or five-eighths thick solid maple drawers with undermount slides and soft closing hinges. And I'll explain, break down every single thing so that way they shouldn't have to question me what I'm using or what hinges or what hardware. And I'll explain, okay, normally handles and things like that that's up to you to pick out so that way that way you can pick out what you really like so that way that's not really priced into it um and then if they really want to get into it i'll go i'll meet up with them and we'll break down everything and i'll explain everything in detail too you're breaking everything down and you're really giving the client exactly exactly what's going on but when you're giving such a detailed proposal with everything in it do you ever worry that your customers are going to go shop that around? They're going to take that and bring that proposal to somebody else and say, this is exactly what's happening. Can you beat it? I feel like that's the right thing to do to explain things. So that way they don't, like I said, don't question you. Why are you using this material versus this material? And then I would say also doing things that way, I haven't really lost any customers that way because right off the get-go i also explain okay just have to ask them simply what's your budget like what are you willing to put for this project because then i'll say oh it's a built-in and they want they want it for four thousand and meanwhile i tell them well it's gonna be like 18 to twenty thousand. Oh, oh we're way off a budget oh sorry i can't really you know at that first meet up with them i'm sorry i'm fortunate i can't really work with you on that i can't change the materials or the process to do it so Fortunately, it's not going to work, but I hope to work with you in the future kind of a thing to kind of weed out those customers that are like that. So I'll give that to them. And then I usually put into that labor charge a portion of time for my time of designing it and going through all the estimates and stuff, too. You lock in a price range, then you make up a full proposal, a very detailed one at that. And then are you giving them this proposal with a design or does the design come after once they've signed on? And also, what does your deposit structure look like? Once everything is approved, how much money are you taking up front to start the actual job? So I try to do, depending on the scope of the work, I'll give them a design, but without like an estimate, just so that I don't waste my time, keep changing the design, changing the design. Like, this is what it's going to be like. Do you like that? No. Can we adjust this? And then I'll give them, this is the price. So that way I don't have to go through all the pricing over and over and over again. Um, And then usually breaking down the pricing Depending on the size of the project, I'll do um, the cover up front, all the materials, and then sometimes half of my labor, and then half of when it's installed, or I'll break it down. Most of the time, it'll be all materials up front, and then maybe break the labor into thirds. Or um, sometimes I'm really flexible on that, depending on how they want to pay, too. Um, Sometimes, maybe if it's a larger job, maybe every month we'll schedule when they'll pay me a certain portion of that percentage. But if it's a smaller job, it's usually, you know, 50-50 on the labor and then a full of the materials up front so I can get everything in order. Got it. So that's that's pretty interesting. You're really spreading out how you take the deposit depending on the project. You don't really have one set go to like 50 percent always. You're always adjusting that on a project-by-project basis. But you're also doing, let's not forget, no matter what your deposit structure is, you make sure you're getting paid for all your materials up front because you break down exactly what your materials cost in that 
pricing structure that you give to the clients. And then you're always getting paid for the materials separately up front, no matter what you're doing with the deposit structure. No matter what. And then half of the labor, at least to cover myself for those few times. And then the half afterwards, because I'm also usually working on at least two or three projects at the same time. If you're working on two or three projects at the same time, how are you keeping them all balanced? Because you do have some shop help, so it's not only you, but if you're selling people on this idea of heirloom quality pieces, then you have to give your all into each and every one of them, which is hard to do for one piece of furniture at a time and is even harder to do when you have three or four pieces going on at the same time, keeping your focus on that, making sure each and every piece is perfect and exactly what you promised the client. How are you scheduling out your time and figuring out how to run these multiple projects and still at the same time give each and every one of them the attention that they deserve? So I try to have each kind of try to have as much as I can projects in different stages. So I'll have something where Maybe I just got the materials. I'm starting to mill lumber, cut plywood, assembly. Then I'll have another project that's assembled but maybe needs to be sanded. Then I'll have another project that's maybe in the finishing stage. So there's always a revolving cycle going on. If not, it's just more like, okay, Monday, Tuesday, I work on this project. Thursday, Friday, and then maybe you know, the weekend on this or weekend if I need to on this one for this little bit, a few hours. And the bigger the project, the more kind of the help I'll have in the shop to get it, you know, to do certain tasks that I don't really need to do, like sanding or um, assembling some cabinets. I could be doing something that's more technical that I know how to do versus the help that I have. It's more like a helping hand. I want to switch topics to your classes, the classes that you're offering out of your shop, because that's another whole source of income for you besides the furniture building. And you really have your market on lock over there, being the only woodworking teacher, only independent woodworking teacher who is on Long Island offering classes. How did that idea of furniture classes start? And how have you grown that to a point where it's another whole source of income for you? So it started out, um, since I was 16, I, I joined the Long Island Woodworkers Club here on Long Island. And came more involved with it. And eventually, around 2017-ish or 2018, um, we all started to get more a surge of emails from people. Oh, where do you take? Where can I take woodworking classes? Where can I take woodworking classes? So I was like, you know what? You know, something that I felt would be a way to give back, like I said before, of what I learned this whole time. So I said, what the heck? I'll give it a try. Um, I think I started with like two, three classes that I put out. And one person took it and one person took it. And then I just added more classes and then, you know, more people wanted to come. And uh, just marketing it through ads on Facebook or Instagram, you know, hey, this is the class with a picture and a video. You can come by Long Island and take this class. And now I do them every month. I have a schedule on my website where I'm at the point where I think I have over 30 different classes that I offer from ranging from, say, like intro to woodworking. It's usually a Saturday or Sunday for four hours you come. I show you how to use the different machines in the shop. So if you're a total beginner, that's the class I recommend. Then I have a joinery class on a weekend you can do. And then after that, it's really projects where you can build uh, a pen on the lathe or a bowl to a Maloof dining chair and a rocking chair or a Rubo workbench. And it's just grown from there to the point where obviously COVID hit me a lot pretty hard on that. But I'm gaining back on that before COVID. 
Um, I had full classes, so it definitely helped as an added income. And then the nice thing about a class is that I know a certain project is going to take so many nights or so many days versus something that I'm building custom. I'm just estimating what that's going to take versus a class is, I know if I, I can set a goal that I want to have a full, these many amount of full classes every month, I can expect this is how much I'm going to make this month. I love that you're doing these classes, but I have to be honest, while you're talking about this, I just have one thing running through the back of my mind, and that's shop organization. We all know that that running a furniture shop is messy and dirty and things get in the way and there's there's issues that come up, especially when you're running multiple projects at the same time. And then on top of that, you have classes in your shop, having other people in your shop, people who don't know how to build things. They don't know how to use the tools properly and they're not invested in your shop because they're just coming to learn. They don't actually work there. And so you have both of these things happening at the same time. So let's talk about your shop and how organized it must be, how accessible for woodworkers and non-woodworkers alike it must be, and how quickly you must be able to clean it up to go from a class to a project and then another project and then a class and then a project. Woodshop organization is a problem for a lot of people and keeping things clean and keeping things organized and keeping things in a way that they can work smoothly is a big part of running a business successfully. So what have been some of your tricks for getting that right in such a way that not only can you run multiple projects at the same time, but you can also have classes and other people working in the shop at the same time and both things can run smoothly? So it's organizing is just making sure a tool has a home everywhere, having good dust collection, you know, having the fest tool vacuums with the sanders help with that. Um, and then depending on the kind of class it is, usually at the end of the class, I just ask people, which most of the time people accept is, can you help me vacuum up, you know, after a lathe turning class? And they'll say, sure. So they help vacuum up. So that helps me, you know, save some time. But usually, you know, I don't mind... Usually it doesn't take more than 10, 15 minutes to clean up after a class. So it's not a really huge deal. So it's about, it's, that's the important thing, but also organizing, making sure things have homes. Yeah. And that's funny about that. Every time I have a class, somebody comes in, like, they say, how do you know where everything in the shop is? They look around. It's like, I could tell you exactly where every little nut and bolt, every screw, every router, every tool is in the shop. And it, it looks like a little bit of a chaos, but it's pretty organized. There was never any doubt in your mind that you would be building furniture for your career. But there are people out there who aren't as confident in that next step as you were. And there's also people who have a business and have been doing this, but maybe don't still have that passion that you do for the industry. What are things that you could share for people listening from your experiences to help them succeed in their own business well if they want to start out doing this i would say the biggest thing is um go work for a company around your neighborhood that does cabinet making and furniture making learn it from them R watch all the videos read books on it do whatever you can absorb everything like a sponge basically learn do just build a project on your own follow some plans and learn from your mistakes and next time become better at it and just practice at everything um and then if you can, which is what I wish I did, was 
work in a shop, but ask them, could I do maybe some work in the office and learn how to do operate that part of the business, which is what I kind of regret that I never did. But I would say that to people do that. And then just really, like I said, learn everything as much as you can before you want to go on your own. You've had a lifetime in this business. And with that comes a lot of knowledge to share. And I want to thank you for sitting down and sharing that. And I appreciate it. And I know everybody listening along appreciates it as well. So thank you and wishing you nothing but success moving forward in your business. All righty. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the show. If you liked what you heard and you got value out of it, please think about leaving a review and subscribing wherever you listen. To learn more about the series, please visit buildingafurniturebrand.com and feel free to reach out anytime with questions or guest suggestions to hello at buildingafurniturebrand.com. You can find me at The Build with Ethan on Instagram. Hope you enjoyed the show and can't wait to bring you the next one.